Mic on. Pad 5 loaded with right. Adjustable. Hi there, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in and listening and keeping and following me this far. This time on episode 20 of this series, I'm going to be playing for you. The title is called Revelation, Why Is There So Many Denominations? I hope you find this discussion or talk informative and a blessing and an inspiration. So enjoy our feature presentation. Mic off. What does the future hold? Where can we find certainty in a world of uncertainty? The Book of Revelation provides hopeful answers for today, tomorrow, and forever. Join Mark Finley, author and world-renowned speaker, on a journey into the future with Revelation's Ancient Discoveries. The Book of Revelation answers our deepest questions. It reveals God's plans for the future. The book of Revelation, written by John on the island of Patmos at the end of the first century, takes us down the stream of time, takes us down the epics of time, takes us through history to reveal the mighty hand of God in every generation. Our Bible study in Revelation today takes us to the four horsemen of Revelation. Your eyes will be opened as the Spirit touches you with the magnificent truths of the four horsemen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for him revealing these truths to us. As we open the pages of scripture, as we see the revelation of God in history, guide us, we pray thee, closer to you. May we make those eternal changes and decisions in our life that will be decisions that will impact our destiny. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. My topic is, why are there so And how did we get this confusing array of churches? One thing is for certain. The average person is bewildered by this confusing array of churches. If you just take the phone book and you start with A, you go to Assembly of God and past the A's, you go to the B's, the Baptists and past the B's, you go to the Church of Christ and past the C's, you go to the Disciples of Christ and well, maybe the E's, every man's religion, but you go down the whole alphabet of religions and you end up with the Zionists. But where did all these different churches come from? It's, is it God's intent for there to be this bewildering array of churches? How can you, have you ever wondered, how can I find the truth? With all these churches, and let's suppose you're moving into a new city and you go to the Yellow Pages, you say, where do I choose a church? How do I find a church? If you would have to look through every different denomination and all of their beliefs, you would become quite confused. In fact, it would take you a lifetime. So you never go to the church to find out what the Bible teaches. Rather, you go to the Bible to find out what truth is. And then you find a church teaching in harmony with the Bible. Now, let me clarify that. You see, if you had to go to the church to find out what the Bible teaches, and you'd have to go through all of these varying churches, one after the other after the other. Maybe it takes you a year to study the doctrines of one and then a year to study the doctrines of another. 
And then pretty soon, what happens? All of your time is consumed. But if you go to the Bible and you raise that question, what says the Bible? The blessed Bible to me, this my only question be, what says the Bible, the blessed Bible to me? So you first go to the Bible to try to discover what the church ought to teach, not in reverse. Bible prophecy clearly reveals why there are so many different denominations. Bible prophecy, specifically the book of Revelation, lets us know just what Scripture teaches about where these different denominations came from. Revelation's four horsemen reveals the future of Christianity. These four horsemen take us down the stream of time. Now here is a prophetic principle in all time sequence prophecy. When you look at the time prophecy, say, of Daniel, the prophecy always begins where the prophet is. You remember the great image of Daniel chapter 2 with the head of gold, the breast and arms of silver, the thighs of brass, the legs of iron, the feet of iron and clay. That prophecy begins in Daniel's day. That's true with the prophecies of the four beasts in Daniel 7, and it's true also with the 11th chapter of the book of Daniel. When you come to the book of Revelation and you look at chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches, they begin where the prophet is. When you come to the trumpets, they begin where the prophet is. The same with the prophecy of the seven seals of the four horsemen. They always begin in the first century where the prophet is. These four horsemen, described in Revelation, reveal four successive ages in the history of the church, four successive time periods, one that follows right after the other from the first century to our generation. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, the seals are opened. And looking here, it says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. So who is the Lamb? Who is that, everybody? The Lamb of God, of course, is Jesus Christ. He's the great Lamb of Revelation, mentioned more than 27 times in the book of Revelation. So the Lamb is opening the seals. Jesus Christ is revealing to you, he's revealing to me, what's going to happen down the stream of time. He's revealing what's going to happen to the Christian church in each successive generation of history. So the Lamb of God, Christ, is opening the seals. If Jesus is opening the seals for you and for me, don't you think it's quite important for us to understand them and study them? The first seal opens, and it says, I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. The beings in heaven say to you and me, come and see. Come and take a look at these seals. Come and understand these seals. Come with us as we unlock the mystery of these seals. What is the first seal when it's open? What does it say? And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth to conquer and conquering. Notice what the Bible says, that the first seal opens, and there's a rider on a white horse. When a Roman general conquered the enemy, he always came back to Rome, riding through the streets of Rome, triumphantly, victoriously, 
on a white horse. So the symbol of a white horse is the symbol of triumph. It's the symbol of victory. New Testament Christianity was triumphant. White is also a symbol of apostolic purity. When Jesus comes, and he comes riding on a white horse with white horses, a symbol of purity and righteousness triumphing over wickedness and evil. So when you look at the first century church, it was pure. Its members were faithful to the living word of God. It was based on the truth of God's word, and that church, New Testament believers, went forth conquering and to conquer everywhere. So what does the white horse represent? This rider on the white horse who gallops across the sky with a bow, who gallops across the sky triumphing. It represents a powerful and pure faith. What a description of New Testament Christianity from A.D. 31 to 100. A pure faith, a powerful faith, a faith that goes everywhere, triumphing over the principalities and powers of hell. The white horse seal opens, represents this conquering faith of New Testament. You know, one Roman writer put it this way, describing the New Testament church. He said, you Christians are everywhere. You're in our armies. You're in our navies. You're in the marketplace and the shops. You're in our senate, our universities. You are everywhere. In fact, one of the early Roman writers wrote back to the governor, and he said to the governor, these Christians have he actually said, this infection of Christianity has influenced even the smallest villages in the empire. So when you see New Testament Christianity, it had a powerful impact on Roman society. The story, in fact, is told of 20 of the leading guards of Rome. These were part of the honor guard of Rome. These 20 guards became Christians, gave their lives to Christ and worshiped the living Christ. And as they did, they were arrested. Another 20 were found. They were arrested. They were taken out to a lake in northern Italy. That lake was now filled with ice. It was cold. It was a winter time. The ice on the lake, a foot, two feet thick. Snow had fallen around the side of the lake. Temperatures were sub-freezing temperatures down in the teens. And these 40 men, 40 of the honor guard of Rome, 40 of those that guarded the Caesar of Rome were taken in the center of the lake. And they were told, we're going to have a fire on the shore. And if you desire to save your life, if you desire to live, all you need to do is deny Christ. And you, need, you can come to this fire and be warm. But if you move from the center of that lake without denying Christ, you'll be slain with the sword. These men circled together, huddled together at that center of the lake, and they began to sing, 40 wrestlers for thee, O Christ, to thine be the honor, to thine be the glory, thy name be exalted. As they sang through the night, they shivered. Some of them were facing freezing to death, one of these broke ranks. He began to go toward the fire for the warmth. He could not stand the cold any longer. 
And as he did, the song began to echo through the air, 39 wrestlers for thee, O Christ, 39 wrestlers for thee, O Christ, to thine be the honor, to thine be the glory. Then the captain of the Roman guard, standing by the fire, saw the faith of these 39. He said, I too will accept Christ. He left the warmth of the fire, went out into the center of that lake, cold, and the song went up again, 40 wrestlers for thee, O Christ, to thine be the glory. One of the early Christian writers, Tertullian, put it this way, the blood of the martyrs is the seat of the gospel. There in the New Testament, nothing could stop the progress of first century Christianity. Armed with the word of God, their minds filled with the truth of God, consumed with a passion for Christ, they went everywhere. Acts 2, 3,000 are baptized into Christ. Acts chapter 4, 5,000 more are added. And you come down and the gospel leaps across geographical boundaries. It penetrates the Middle East, penetrates Asia, penetrates Europe. God is working a miracle in the white horse period. You see, my friend, when men and women do not compromise truth in their own life, the church's power. Why at times today? Has the church become powerless? Why at times today has society and culture impacted the church? Because when you drift away from the Word of God, when you drift away from Christ's passion and have this passion for Christ, when religion becomes external, then the church loses its power. But here in the four seals, the four horsemen, the scene changes. The devil knows he must do something. So we go to the red horse period. The Bible says another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. There was given to him a great sword, the red horse period. Persecution comes upon the church. The devil sees the church going forward powerfully. The devil wants to stop that onward motion of the church. So the red horse period, bloodshed, conflict come. Peace is taken from the earth. The state powers of Rome persecute the church. Christians are brought to the Colosseum, some thrown to lions there. They brought to Circumus Maximus with the great horse racing stadium, and they are told to deny their faith. Taken in that stadium, chain, chained one arm, chained one foot, put to a, a horse is here chain this arm, chain this leg, horse is here. And the Christian is told, unless you recant of your faith, the horses will run in opposite directions, you'll be torn apart. But yet in the midst of that persecution, in the midst of being cast to lions, in the midst of being killed with the sword, in the midst of being torn apart, not only by wild beasts, but in those horse racing stadiums, Christians were faithful to God. And their persecution only showed the truthfulness of their faith. The Red Horse period is a bloodstained faith, faith from 100 to 313 A.D., particularly the 10-year persecution of Diocletian from 303 to 313 A.D. The devil knows, I must do something. So what happens? The White Horse period, the pure faith, gives way to the Red Horse period, the bloodstained faith. But then another horse marches across the sky, 
the black horse period. And here in this black horse period, faith compromised. Revelation 6 verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. And I say to you, my friend, come and see. Come and see the history of Christianity during this period. So I looked and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. The churches weighed in the balance and found wanting. This is the period of the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries. Compromise comes into the Christian church. Pagan practices come into the Christian church. Church and state unites at this period. So I looked, he says, and behold, a black horse who sat on had a pair of scales in his hand. Satan's strategy was to introduce compromise, to lead the church to adopt pagan practices. The devil knew that he could not destroy the church merely through persecution. These Christians were solid in their faith for Christ. These Christians were stalwart in their faith for Christ. These Christians were courageous in their faith for Christ. So the devil had to decide on another strategy. What was that strategy? Bringing compromise into the church. And so from A.D. 313 to approximately A.D. 537 and 38, we see a compromised faith. We see pagan practices and the practices not found in the Bible, tradition coming into the Christian church. From a pure faith in the white horse period to a red horse of bloodstained faith to the black horse of the compromised faith. From the first century to the fourth century, things in the Christian church begin to dramatically change. Now the Bible predicted this. The Apostle Paul actually predicted that this would happen. Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and 30, and Paul said this, For I know this, that after my departure, grievous wolves will enter into the flock. That is, persecution would come from without. That is, the church would be persecuted, torn apart, the sword, fire, men and women who stood for Christ being cast to the lions. That would take place. But after that, notice what the Apostle Paul says. Also from your own selves will men rise up. From your own selves. Who was he talking to? He was addressing the leadership of the Christian church. He was addressing the elders of the church. And he said, from within your own communion, your own fellowship, there will those men that rise up. They'll speak perverse things. What's perverse? What's perverse? It's crooked. They'll speak crooked things, deceitful things, to draw away disciples after them. So here the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and 30, makes two predictions. One, that persecution would come into the Christian church. Two, in addition to the persecution that came into the Christian church, that there would be a apostasy within the church, that falsehoods would come in, that errors would come in. Indeed, history reveals that that took place. The teachings of men were substituted for the teachings of the Word of God. What happened? How did that happen? The Roman Empire by this time was falling apart. And the pagan Roman Emperor Constantine tried to discover a way to unite his empire. The barbarian tribes were coming down from the north the Huns, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, the Alamenni, the Suevi, and so forth. They were coming down. Many of these were being Christianized. So to make 
Christianity more attractive to the pagans, the pagan emperor Constantine and the church leaders together began to make compromises. Images were brought into the church. The pagans were used to worshiping images. Sunday worship came into the church during this period of time. The Bible says that what would happen here, Daniel 8 verse 12, he cast truth down to the ground. That's this church-state power, the little horn, or what would be called the Antichrist power in these days. He cast down truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. So church and state would unite in these early centuries, and as it did, it would grow strong. Truth would be compromised. I like the way James Russell Lowell puts it in his poem, truth forever on the scaffold wrong forever on the throne, yet that scaffold sways the future, and beyond the dim unknown standeth God, keeping watch over his own. God always watches over his children, even in days of compromise. Now, in the development of Christian doctrine, page 372, this uh, historian writes, we are told by Eusebius, Eusebius was one of the early historians of Rome, that Constantine, in order to recommend the new religion, that's Christianity, to the heathen. So Constantine and the church leaders want to recommend Christianity to the heathen. What do they do? Transferred into it the outward ornaments to which they had been accustomed in their own. Now don't miss this. So Constantine unites with the Christian church. He wants to, he desires to have the heathen converted. And so what do they do? They transfer the ornaments, that is the images of paganism, the rites of paganism, the worship of paganism, into the Christianity to try to make Christianity more attractive to paganism. This really is a compromise period. Salvation through Christ, the simplicity of the gospel, the teachings of the Word of God were replaced by the requirements of the church. You know, in Ephesians 2 verse 8, it says, by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of God and not of yourselves. So that simplicity of the gospel was substituted for the teachings of men and the complexity of human tradition. The church grew large, large cathedrals were built, requirements were placed upon Christian believers that were never found in Scripture. The lighting of candles, the bringing of money to gain indulgences as penance for sin, kneeling before images and worshiping those images, the taking of incense and offering that as some form of righteousness. These works came into the church and salvation by grace through faith was substituted for the works of man. During the age of compromise, the pagan's day of the sun replaced the Bible Sabbath. Now that might surprise you, and you might say, why do so many people worship on Sunday rather than the Bible Sabbath? Where does that come from? You know, in Genesis, it's clear. God says, remember, there the Sabbath. He sanctified the Sabbath. He blessed the Sabbath. He rested upon the Sabbath. You remember in Genesis 2, verse 1 to 3, it says, and on the seventh day, God finished all the work that he had made. And God blessed the seventh day, and God sanctified the seventh day, and God 
rested upon the seventh day. He gave it right at creation before the Jewish race ever existed. He gave it to Adam and Eve. And you remember in the Ten Commandments written with God's own finger on tables of stone, Exodus chapter 20 verse 8 to 11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So all through the Old Testament the Sabbath was the day of God as opposed to sun worship by the heathens. And then in the New Testament, Luke 4, verse 16, the Bible says, as his custom was, Jesus went into the synagogue. He went there to worship on the Bible's Sabbath. The disciples kept the Sabbath, but look, how was the Sabbath changed? Here's the history of the Eastern Church, page 184. It's describing how this Sabbath was changed. The retention of the old pagan name of Des Solus. Des means day, Solus Sunday. For Sunday is in a great measure owing to the union, owing to the union of what? Pagan and Christian sentiment with which the first day of the week was recommended by Constantine to his subjects, pagan and Christian alike, as the venerable day of the sun. So notice what history says. There is no question about how Sabbath was changed, not by God. He says, I am the Lord, I change not, Malachi 3 not by Jesus. He says in the book of Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and forever. Not by the disciples. Acts chapter 5 verse 28 and 29, we ought to obey God rather than man. How did the Sabbath get changed? By a union, a synthesis, a bringing together of pagan and Christian sentiments. So the pagans were worshiping the sun god. Some Christians had started worshiping on Sunday, the first day in honor of the resurrection. Now the Bible never tells us to do that, of course. The symbol of the resurrection is baptism. Romans chapter 6 says we go into the watery grave and we come out resurrected into this new life of Christ. So compromises came into the church during the Black Horse period. Satan's master strategy was to influence powerful church leaders to unite with powerful state leaders in the Black Horse period, and that happened. And once that happened, the church began to lose its spiritual power. In a doctrinal catechism, page 174, with the imprimata of the Pope of Rome by Stephen Kenyon, the question is asked, have you any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals of precept. In other words, the question is raised, how, how, how can the church have authority to establish all these holy days where if you don't go that sin, you know, to church? How, how can the church do that? So the author is arguing, here's why. Had she not such power, she could not have done that in which all modern religionists agree with her. Well, what, what is it that all modern religionists agree with? She could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day of the week. Are you getting the significance of this, my friend? Here in the Catechism, to uphold the authority of Rome, Stephen Kenyon, the author, says that one of the evidences that the Church of Rome has authority over Christianity is that she has changed the Sabbath from Saturday the seventh day to Sunday the first day. A change, the Catechism says, for which there is no scriptural authority. On that point I agree with the Catechism. 
There is no scriptural authority. There is no clear command at all in the New Testament that says the Sabbath was changed from the seventh day to the first day of the week. When did this happen? During the Compromise period, during the Black Horse period. The Bible predicted indeed that these pagan practices such as sun worship would enter into the Christian church during this period of time. That leads us to the fourth horse, the pale horse. Now the pale is a symbol of death and by this time we've gone down the sequence of the ages and now Christianity during what's now known as the dark or middle ages is experiencing death. Look, Revelation 6 verse 8, so I looked and behold a pale horse. What kind of a horse everybody? A pale horse, death. And the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades, that's the grave, followed with him. And powers given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. In other words, church and state had united. Anytime the church unites with the state, it turns from its true lover, Jesus Christ. And when the church and state unite and the church goes to the state for its power, it's because it's lost its godliness, it's lost its genuine authority that comes from God, and it's lost truly its Holy Spirit power. Church and state unite. When they do, what happens? Typically what happens when church and state unite is that there is persecution for those who have not gone along, who've not accepted this church-state union. And so power is given, so there's persecution that occurs. During the Black Horse period, the, there was compromise. During the Pale Horse period, there was spiritual death. The church grew large. The church became the major institution of the state. But although it had these large edifices, there was a lack of spirituality, a lack of genuine, authentic godliness. In fact, in the history of Christianity, century 2, chapter 2, section 7, there is this statement about Christianity in the Dark Ages. It's a remarkable statement. Christianity became an established religion in the Roman Empire. Now, I want to remind you, this is the historian speaking, and took the place of paganism. Christianity as it existed in the Dark Ages might be termed baptized paganism. What a term, baptized paganism. When you bring in these pagan practices to the church, when you bring in these traditions to the church, when you bring in the teachings of men that substitute for the Word of God, what do you have? You don't have Christianity. You have a weakened faith, if you can call it a faith at all. You have a weakened faith and you have baptized paganism. Here we have the pale horse period from about 538 AD to 1798. But wait, would truth be cast down forever? It took about 500 years to go into this period from the white horse period of pure faith when the church goes forth conquering and to conquer, preaching the word of God, uplifting Jesus Christ, faithfully obedient to him from A.D. 331 to A.D. 100. The red horse period, blood-stained faith, A.D. 100 to 
313. Black Horse Period, Compromise Faith, A.D. 313 to A.D. 538. Pagan practices, traditions come into the church, compromise. But then there is spiritual death, the Pale Horse Period, about A.D. 538 to A.D. 1798, what would we would call a dead faith. There is the union of church and state during this period of time. True Christianity is being squelched. Men and women during this period of time are chained. They're burned again. Persecution is revived. What are some of those steps that led to this compromise? First, you'll find in leading this compromise, there were traditions. The traditions of men came into the church. There were penances. What are penances? When you go on long pilgrimages to earn your salvation. Many of these Christian pilgrims would go on their knees, some of them coming to Rome with blood-stained knees, some of them fasting long periods of time. Why? Desiring to earn their salvation. Indulgences. What are indulgences? Indulgences are grants by the popular Roman church for forgiveness of sin based on a certain amount of money that one might give. You see, the church believed this, that if you weren't good enough to go to heaven and you weren't bad enough to go to hell, you'd end up in a place called purgatory. And according to the teaching of the Roman church at that time, purgatory was a place between heaven and hell where you would burn and be consumed uh, of all your sin. You would be purged of sin in purgatory. Now, depending on how much you had sinned, that would be depending about how long you'd suffer. Now, you can imagine, the average person didn't believe they were good enough to go to heaven. They weren't righteous like the saints. They thought they're probably not bad enough to go to hell, but they thought that they would be burned in purgatory and there would be consumed there, their sin would be consumed there. Think about if that was your understanding and you want, could get out of there by paying money. Wouldn't you sell a lot to pay money not to live in purgatory? That's, was, that's what indulgences were. Images came into the church. You take the image of Apollo, the image of Zeus, change their names to Peter. Uh, take the image of Venus and change your name to Mary. Bring those things into the church. All this is taking place during the Dark Ages. You got the church hierarchy whose authority takes the place of the Bible. You have human dogmas and human traditions. And so you have this dark ages. Truth of God has been stamped down. But would the truth be stamped down forever? Would God's truth be trodden down always? Would there be voices that came to uphold and uplift that truth? Jude, beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, the Bible writer says, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting, that means encouraging, urging you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Earnestly contend for the faith delivered to the saints. Uphold the Word of God. Light would shine in the darkness. God would raise up men and women whose minds would be captive to the Word of God. The Bible would be translated into the language of the people. The Word of God would be copied and copied and spread. And although there would be fierce opposition, although many copies of the Word would be seized and burned, there would be those 
that faithfully read God's Word, those whose lives would be guided by the Word, those that would be obedient to the Word, those who would find Christ in the Word and come to a new joy and a new peace in their life, those who would find new spiritual vitality as they obeyed God's Word and walked in the light of truth. One of these groups in the 1300s were the Bible-believing Waldensians. Peter Waldo was their leader, and he began to read the Word of God. He had some manuscripts of it that he was able to get and read from monasteries, and as he began to read, his life was transformed. The grace of Christ touched Peter Waldo's heart, and he began to share from the Word with others. He began to recognize that the Word of God had authority, that the Word of God was supreme, that the Word of God stood high and above the teachings of the church. This led to persecution. This led the Waldenses to flee from Rome and to flee from Italy and flee from Switzerland and flee from France, and they came to the mountains of northern Italy and southern France, high there in the Alps. They built their stone homes there. They were a peace-loving people, studied the Word of God there, but the armies of Rome often pursued them there. The Waldensians would flee high up into the mountains. Not long ago, I was up in these mountains, in this very stone hut. This is where, in fact, they copied the Word of God. I remember sitting at this table, and I sat at this table with my own Bible in my hand. And as I sat there thinking how free it is in our country, the United States, in, in many Western countries today, to read and have a copy of the Bible, I thought of these Waldensians sitting at this stone table, copying the Bible so that they could share it. And often these Waldensian women whose sons were copying the Bible and whose husbands were Waldensian preachers. Waldensian women would sew secret pockets into the long flowing robes of their children. They would hide pages of scripture in those long flowing robes. These young men, brilliant young women, would go down to the cities of Europe. They would go as merchants and artisans. They'd sell pots and pans and as they found somebody that was honest, somebody whose heart was opened, somebody whose mind was opened, they would share the scriptures with them. And soon a little light of truth here, and soon a little light of truth there. Many of the Waldenses enrolled in the great universities of Europe, and they gathered students around, secretly of course, and soon the authorities didn't know what was happening. The light of truth was shining. And I remember the last time I was here in the Waldensi Valleys, there's one thing I wanted to do. I hadn't done it all of the other times I was at the Waldensi Valleys. I wanted to climb. I wanted to go on the route that they went over the mountains where they were pursued by the Roman armies. We went down into the cave where they hid. Then we began to climb hour after hour across the mountains. What a journey. What a trip. The Waldensians believed in the Bible and the Bible only, but they did not understand or know all the truth. You see, it took 500 years for the truth to be compromised. And so God began to restore the truth a little bit in each person's mind. God raised up John Huss, Czechoslovakian reformer, and he made obedience to God his motto. I think that's a great motto, don't you? Not obedience to the church, 
not obedience to religious prelates, not obedience to religious priests or pompous pastors, but obedience to God. Our first allegiance is to God. And John Huss came in conflict with the popular church, eventually was burned at the stake and martyred for his faith. God raised up one reformer after the other. Huss stood there at the stake, and as he did, they took the dry wood, put it around his feet. The executioner came and, uh, with the torch, and Huss was singing, Lord, have mercy on me, offering up his life. Why? Because he had obedience to God. Then the executioner came around behind him, was going to light the flame, and it is reported that Huss said, my friend, you don't need to come behind me. Bring the flame to my face, because if I were afraid, I would not be here. But as Huss died for his faith, others stepped forward. The Reformation was going. The Spirit of God was moving, and it could not be stopped. Light was shining in the darkness. God raised up Martin Luther, who was a priest, but who felt tormented. He felt agonized, wanted to find peace. He would beat himself, flagellate himself, whip himself, but yet could find no peace. Traveled to Rome. He thought, I can find peace there. Climbed up what was believed to be Pilate's staircase, where the Roman church taught, of course, tradition, no foundation in history or scripture, that uh, the angels brought the Pilate's staircase that Christ went up on his knees uh, from Jerusalem back to Rome. Luther was going up that staircase on his knees, and then he heard in his ears the words, the just shall live by faith. He left that staircase and came back to his home in Wittenberg because he knew that Christ only was our Savior. These words echoed in his ears. Romans 1 verse 17, the just shall live by faith. He felt such joy. It's not climbing up the staircase on your knees. It's not flagellating yourself. It's not fasting for days. You know, Luther tells of a dream he had one night. One night he's sleeping. He has a dream. And in that dream, Satan appears before him in all of his hideous form. And Satan unrolls a scroll. And on that scroll are Luther's sins. And Satan says, are these your sins? And Luther trembles. He says, they are, they are, they are. Can you deny they're your sins? No, I cannot. Is the wages of sin death? Yes, it is. Do you deserve to die? Yes, I do. Will you receive eternal death? And Luther says, I'm trembling in that dream. Then he notices that the devil's hand is over something on the top of that scroll. And Luther says, move your hand. Move your hand. The devil says, no. Move your hand. No. Finally, in the name of Jesus, move your hand. He moves his hand and it says, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses Martin Luther from all his sins. Friend of mine, I don't know what guilt fills your life. I don't know how condemned you feel. I don't know how unclean you feel. But I know this, the blood of Christ will cleanse you from all your sins. Because Acts 4 verse 12, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved except the name, the lovely name, the beautiful name of Jesus. Jesus has never lost a case and he can save you. Light shining through the darkness. The Waldensians, the Bible, and the Bible alone as the rule of faith. 
John Huss, obedience to God as the motto. Martin Luther, grace and faith, but not one of these men had all the truth of God. The light of truth would penetrate the darkness just as the sun rises gradually. The light of truth was rising. Does God turn on all the light at once in the morning? Does the sun just boom come out? Look, it took 500 years for the church to go from the white horse period to the black horse period down to the pale horse period. So you have black horse, you have white horse, then you have red horse, then you have black horse, you have pale horse. That whole process took 500 years. If God would have led the church out of that pale horse period and out of that dense, deep darkness all at once, have you ever walked out of a dark room into the sunlight? What happens? You kind of blink and your eyes are blinded. So God gradually revealed his truth to each generation as it was coming out of the period of darkness. Why are there so many different denominations? Because people camped. They didn't keep moving. The Lutherans said, oh, if Luther believed it, it's good enough for us. Hussites, oh, if the Hussites believe it, it's good enough for us. And, but God had more truth. He had more light to reveal. He was leading his people out of darkness. God raised up John Calvin. Calvin's special contribution was to bring theological truth together, to bring biblical truth together. He didn't understand everything. He actually didn't understand fully religious liberty, and he persecuted people who were not in harmony with his understanding. He didn't understand, for example, the great truths about the second coming of Christ and the signs of the times and the way Christ would come. He didn't fully understand everything about baptism by immersion. So what does God do? He uses Calvin. He only understood part of the truth, but God raises up others. When John Robinson, that great pilgrim preacher, stood with his followers on the shores there in Holland at the dock and the boat was to sail, this is what Robinson said to his followers, and it's good counsel for you and me. If God should reveal anything to you, by any other instrument of his, be as ready to receive it as ever you were to receive any truth of my ministry. For I am confident the Lord has more truth and light yet to break forth out of his holy word. Friend of mine, I would say to you, if God reveals more light and truth to you, follow it. If God reveals light and truth to you from his word, do not turn your back on it. God was leading out of the dark ages, men and women to the fullness of his truth. He raised up the Anabaptists. Why? Because a truth was long lost sight of. What was that truth? The truth of baptism. You see, Luther still sprinkled. He still baptized babies, as did others of the reformers. But the truth of baptism by immersion had been lost sight of. So God raised up the Anabaptists to restore that truth. Often people say to me, Pastor Mark, what do you believe? I believe in the Bible and the Bible only, and so in that sense, I'm a Waldensian. I believe in obedience to God supremely. In that sense, I'm a Hussite. I believe in salvation by grace. In that sense, I'm a Lutheran. I believe that we're supposed to grow in grace. In that sense, I'm a Calvinist. I believe in baptism by full immersion. In that sense, I am a Baptist. 
The Bible says, Matthew 28, verse 29 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, go and baptize. I believe that. And men and women who hear the word of God are to follow Christ and be baptized, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus said, go to the ends of the earth. Don't teach part of what I've commanded. What does the scripture say? It says teaching them to observe, to keep, to do all things that I have commanded you. John Wesley was raised up by God. The church lacked in holy standards and Wesley came along preaching moving, powerful sermons for men and women to come to their knees to repent of their worldliness, to repent of their earthliness, to have high and holy standards in their dress, in their music, in their entertainment. He brought small groups together that studied the Word of God to grow in the area of sanctification, to grow in the area of holiness. I believe that God calls His church to be separate from the world. I believe that God calls His church to high and holy standards. I believe that God calls His church to be distinct. A light can only penetrate the darkness if light is distinct from the darkness. If the church is like the world, the world will not be influenced by the church and the church can't make an impact on the world. Do you see what God's strategy was? He is leading a people out of the dark ages, leading a people back to Himself. William Miller was raised up by God. So you see, at this time, the church believed and religious leaders taught that there'd be a thousand year millennial period on earth. The church was not preaching the soon coming, imminent second coming of Christ. See, the Waldensians were brought up in the 12 and 1300s to emphasize the Bible and the Bible only. Huss came along following them to emphasize obedience to God. God raised up Martin Luther, 1517, nailed the 95 Theses on the wall at Wittenberg. So Martin Luther is raised up then. Then God raises up John Calvin. They, he, they bring together the systematic theology. God raises up the John Wesleys. You see, every generation, by now we come to the 1800s, but the church isn't beating with an urgency. The church is complacent. The idea Christ is going to come to earth. He's going to set up his kingdom. William Miller begins to study the Word of God. And as he does, light dawns on his mind. Christ is coming and he's coming soon. And all over the world there is this messianic movement, this sense of the coming of Christ. Manuel Acunza, a Catholic priest in South America, begins to sense Christ is coming, writes under the pen name of Rabbi Benezra. Edward Irving, 300 church churchmen in the England, begins to write. 300 preachers there, Anglicans, begin to write about second coming of Christ. Johann Bengel in Germany and Joseph Wolff all over the world. God was moving. There is an Advent movement and God is restoring the truth about the second coming of Jesus Christ. What was God doing? Why are there so many different denominations? Because the Waldensians stopped at Waldo and the Hussites stopped at Huss and the Lutherans stopped at Luther and the Calvinists stopped at Calvin and the Baptists say if we're baptizing by immersion this is good enough for us and, and uh, the Methodists say 
oh, we don't go any further than Wesley, and then you got the Millerites. But what was God doing? Restoring the truth about the Bible, about obedience, about grace, about growth in Christ, about baptism, about holiness, about the second coming. But was all that truth restored? Not at all. God would restore the truth of the Bible Sabbath. And in an age of evolution, God would lead men and women back to the keeping of His commandments. And Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, do what? If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. God would raise up a Sabbath-keeping body that would be the capstone of the Reformation. God would raise up a last-day church. The Bible says, worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Worship the Creator, an end-time message in Revelation to go to the ends of the earth at a time of evolution. Jesus says in Revelation 14, verse 12, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that believe like the Hussites, the Bible and the Bible only. Here are they that believe like the Waldensians and the Hussites, the Bible and the Bible only, and obedience to God as our motto. Here are they that believe like Luther, salvation by grace alone. Here are they that believe like Calvin, that we need to have a theology, a belief system that's not scattered but, but unified together and we must grow in grace like Wesley said and be separate from the world. Here is a group of people that believe that Jesus Christ is coming again. Here is a Sabbath-keeping body that bases their faith on the living Word of God. Here is a called out people, a people that believe in the Bible and the Bible only, a people that believe in obedience to God as their motto, a people that believe in salvation by grace through Christ, a people that believe that the church is organized and it must be a mighty movement that goes to the ends of the earth, a people that believe in baptism by immersion, a people that believe too that God has called us to holiness, and a people that believe in the second coming of Christ and a Sabbath-keeping people. There's only one group of people like that on the face of the earth that I know, friend, and that are Seventh-day Adventists. Some time ago, there were three men, Ridley, Kramer, and Latimer, and there they were tried for their faith in the Middle Ages. God is calling men and women again to have that courage. They were burned at the stake, burned at the stake in Oxford. And while they were, you, Latimer, looked over at Ridley and he said, be of good comfort. We shall this day light a candle by God's grace that shall never ever be put out. Step out for Jesus. The word of God is true today. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You can light a candle, a candle in your home. You can light a candle. You can light a candle, my friend, a candle of truth. You can stand with those. You can stand with those who are faithful to Christ down through the ages. You can stand with the people of God. Listen, my friend, Jesus Christ will never let you go. Jesus Christ will never, never keep you from walking in the convictions that you have. He will empower you. He will strengthen you. He will enable you. Some people say, well, I'm not sure if Jesus is leading me that way. 
My friend, Jesus is leading you that way. He is leading you to stand with the Waldenses. He is leading you to have God and God alone as your leader. He is leading you to stand with Huss and make obedience to God your motto. He is leading you to stand with Luther and say, Jesus, all I want is your grace. All I want is your grace. Lord, I know that salvation can only be through your grace. That's where Jesus is leading you. He's leading you to stand with these great reformers down through the ages. Leading you to stand with Wesley, who says separation from the world is a Christian teaching. He's leading you to stand with Miller, who said Christ is coming. We must be ready. He's leading you to stand with those Sabbath-keeping believers who've been faithful to God down through the centuries. Jesus is appealing to you. Ridley and Latimer and Kramer stood in that square, stood there in Oxford as the wood was placed around them. And they said, we will be faithful to God. God is calling you to that faithfulness. God is calling you to make that decision. Jesus is leading you. Would you like to say to Jesus right now, Lord, I'm opening my heart to you. I'm not going to camp. I'm not going to camp where my religious forefathers camped. I'm not going to stay where they stayed. These reformers were men of truth. They were godly men. They lived up to all of the word of God they had. But God had more truth for them. And God has more truth for you. Your father, your mother may have lived up all the truth they had. They were faithful and they'll be saved in God's kingdom. But God has something more for you. Would you step out and say, Jesus, I'm going to walk with your end time people. As we pray, Father in heaven, thank you for your wonderful love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you lead us step by step, that you reveal more light to us, that you reveal more truth to us. Thank you, Jesus, that we can follow you now and forever. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us for Revelation's ancient discoveries. God has another step for you to take in your Christian experience. Why not right now say, Jesus, I will take that step.
Mic on. This completes Revelations. Why is there so many denominations? Stay tuned for the next episode. Revelations, final appeal. Mic off.